Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. I'm surrounded by white people, and like, am I just like listening to white music? But in a way, it wasn't even a thing until 9 11. Today, Muslim punks, Pakistani surf music, and mental health. I knew about Shah Jahan Khan through his band, The Kuminas. Their music was a force at once disruptive and constructive, tearing things down and building them up at the same time. It's a dancey blend of punk rock, surf music, and classic South Asian vibes. Their songs are full of irreverence, using humor and absurdity, drawing on their experiences of being brown and Muslim in America. Like Disco Uncle, which you're hearing right now. And the Kaminas weren't alone. They were part of a bigger moment in punk that was captured first in the novel, then a feature documentary titled The Taqwa Pours. Shah Jahan is now approaching 40. He still plays music occasionally with the Kuminas, but now spends more of his time as an actor and helping to run Rafelian Media, a company working to proliferate and amplify diverse voices. He hosted their award-winning podcast, King of the World, an unflinching look at his own past, exploring his journey through addiction, creativity, and living as a Muslim in America after 9-11. Our conversation took us to some surprising places. It ended up largely being about mental health, purpose, and how music can help us find ourselves. Shah Jahan Khan, welcome to This Being Human. Thank you so much for having me. It's really awesome to be here. Shah Jahan, as a music head, I gotta ask you, what's playing on the turntable this week? I don't actually own a turntable, but you mean my, I'm kind of embarrassed. I mean, I have CDs that are in the car. It's funny being in recovery and stuff. You know, I've been sober and everything now for about 12 years. The very, very first time I ever went to treatment, I was 18 or 19, I think. Uh, definitely not like ready to take it all on. But I met this kid who actually grew up in my town and his name, he went by Oliver in the band. I won't say his real name, but the band was called Miss Pigeon, Miss Pigeon. And they were like local kind of like garage rock legends in Boston. And then I, you know, I lost touch with him. The band like kind of fell apart and stuff. 
And every few years, I would think about him a lot. At some point last year, I found these albums of theirs online. Oh, that's and so awesome. I got these physical CDs from this like random dude on eBay. So that's actually been a regular rotation in my car, these three albums. It's, it's fascinating in a way, like our own sort of journeys, right? Into the musics that eventually kind of move us, influence us, shape our lives. But there's one kind of music that I know you've been like pretty obsessed with. And I have to say, it's the kind of music that would be the farthest thing from my mind when associating it with Pakistaniness, and that's mm-hmm. surf music. Surf mm-hmm. music is probably the farthest thing in my mind it's from Pakistan and being Pakistani. But I know you know differently. <laughs> yeah. So actually, in the uh, this was a <laughs> we were hoping to do a podcast this year about the psychedelic surf rock scene in Pakistan in the sixties and seventies. That's wild, Shah Jahan. Yeah. So there were these bands of like now uncles who had band names like the Panthers, the Mods, the AJs, and they were like into just like groovy psychedelic rock. And it was a very small scene of bands. And, you know, some of them in the early periods of Pakistani music, like when EMI was, the label was first created. But yeah, and we basically, myself and my bandmates and Kaminas, uh, quote unquote, discovered this music when some white dude wrote about it in like some hipster blog or label that he started. Uh, this guy Stuart, and you know, then we we were like, oh my god, this is so cool. And then like we told our parents, and they were like, yeah, we remember these bands, man. Like this isn't, you know, but they weren't like the mainstream filmy necessarily music. Like these were bands that were just kind of making kind of like weirder stuff, you know. So that yeah, that definitely existed, and also like yeah, Pakistani culture is all about like music and film, and you know. Where was this music being played? Is this like it were they like in Karachi? Were they like so surfing it was literally in Karachi? Just, just yeah, a handful of yeah, handful of bars and nightclubs in Karachi. And it's interesting because this is something I was hoping to explore in the show. Essentially, I couldn't get any of these uncles to talk to me. Like there was one of them, a really good dear friend of mine, Asin Sajad from the band The Panthers, has always been down to do stuff. And he was the first one that did a couple of interviews. I tried to talk to a couple of other guys, and you know, they're just a little older and they're just not you know, some of them aren't doing too great health-wise and stuff. And so we decided that we couldn't continue with the show. But yeah, it was basically just kind of like a group of kids, like doing music and playing parties with their friends. Some of them got signed. Some of them released a couple records. And another big thing is a lot of them came from the Christian community in Pakistan. Like that's mm. something that maybe they don't get a lot of credit for is that like Pakistan is obviously like a predominantly Muslim country and stuff. But the vast majority of like the, and I mean like the working class musicians are from like the Christian community there. I'm sure you know this, Shah Jahan, but you know, like surf music in the United States has this amazing connection to Lebanese Americans, yeah, right? Yeah, of course, Dick Dale. Dick Dale. Yeah. And, and it's one of these almost like, if you know, you know, or if you've investigated, you kind of have a sense of it. But most people don't realize that the entire you know, kind of genre oeuvre of surf music owes itself to these Lebanese American musicians, particularly Dick Dale, and all of these amazing instrumental riffs that are basically mm-hmm. takes on like Egyptian yeah, Lebanese and, and yeah. yeah Syrian exactly. music, which I think yeah. is I didn't so even know that when I was living in Pakistan in 2008, um, doing music and different stuff. Um, I think I cover, we cover some of that in, in the show as well. Uh, the, my introduction to my radio show was Miserloo. 
by Dick. Like, that's what I would do. And in my head, I was like, oh, this is the Pulp Fiction music. But I didn't even know that at the time. You know? <laughs> what were you doing in Pakistan, Shah Jahan, in 2008? Yeah, so in 2008, we had, uh, the Kamina started uh, 2004, 2005. We had released one record. My bandmate Basim had uh, graduated. He had gotten a job at Dawn News in Pakistan. I had dropped out of school. I was really like not doing great. You know, just kind of like by that point, I had experimented a little bit with sobriety and stuff, and I I was I was a super problematic cannabis user, and and I I just say that because I think I always try to say that part because I'm not one of these people that like got sober and is like everybody has you know what I mean, but for me personally, like cannabis was a huge huge problem, and so in 2008, Bassem basically was like, hey man, why don't you just move to Pakistan, like you know, by virtue of the fact that you speak English, you can probably easily get a job. Just come live with me. And, you know, and I just, I was like, yeah, man, what the hell else am I doing? So I moved there. And yeah, I've understood later that like what I was doing was I was trying to build a relationship with this place that was a part, that was like my own thing. You know, the some, this post, whatever, post 9-11, just growing up thing where you kind of like want to go to a place where you technically are from, you know, and see if you can just like live there. And it, it was a crazy time for the band because like we got all this attention all of a sudden, you know, oh, these the Muslim punk band in the US and, you know, this could, all this clash of civilizations, you know, thing. And uh, a lot of it was through the lens of like white journalism. But basically we got not like super famous, but we got like kind of indie somewhat famous. For them too, it was, we were like, doing Punjabi punk rock music there, you know? And mm. so we have, I've learned later that like, we've kind of left a bit of a legacy, which I'm super proud of there. It's what you want when you like start an indie band that like, yeah, maybe not everybody knows you, like you're not some big star or whatever, but like the cool kids seem to know you. Was it like coming home like you? For the I, first I, like couple this, of months. In this Pakistani diaspora, right? And then you, there's that one trip, right? Where you're, you know, you go back and see family and relatives but then there's that trip like your trip right where there's you, the trip where, where you're you like oh back. people people party here like yeah oh, and there's you know there's stuff going on yeah and it's more than just family but there's this yeah deep and rich culture that all of a sudden you kind of dip your foot into or jump into yeah and you're like okay this is a different kind of pakistan how do i relate to it did you find that oh i've you'd arrived at a place that you could call home or a home initially yes but I think that is a, for me at least, was sort of a veneer of like, I'll just magically transport myself to a place that I sort of belong to and everything will be fine. I'll fit right in. And that's not the case. Like after those first couple of months, like living there is really hard, man. Like even being the extremely privileged people that we were, you know, we didn't, we were like in the upper whatever, you know, percentage of society. We had a place to live and like we had family that we could always turn to. And, you know, just the day-to-day -day struggles of, like, living in Pakistan is really hard, you know? Like, and, you know, we make jokes or stuff. Like, I'm used to, like, standing in line and, like, the line going forward, uh, you know, without, like, a million people, like, getting in my way. But also to some more serious stuff of, like, yeah, maybe the price of... I mean, again, this is 2023 America, so maybe this isn't too far-fetched, but literally the price of bread and stuff is changing day-to-day, there's just all these like things going on and it's not safe, you know. I'm not saying I, I couldn't get robbed 
at gunpoint in, you know, any city in America, like that happened in Lahore during Ramadan. And it was kind of my fault. Like I was going out for a walk during Sari time and I had like cargo shorts on and I was literally like, just walk. And it's like, whatever. I just, I kind of looked like, you basically you're look rob like a, me, like a for a, it. You basically yeah. look like a Farangi, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's later in life that I've understood how important that was for me. But at the time, it was a very, very difficult spot. What was that breakout moment? I've been trying to think about it because I followed your work and the work of the Caminas because it was there was something so disruptive and exciting and wacky about it. And also in some ways, like to me, there was something familiar too because there's so much in our own musical histories, traditions, and civilizations that is disruptive. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the Caminas were like the next iteration of that like disruptive cultural force. When did you realize that, oh, I think we're on to something here. Something is going on around us. Somewhat quickly, I think, there used to be this website called Muslim Wake Up. I remember it. Our buddy Mike, Mike Knight, he like wrote an article about us. Shah Jahan's buddy Mike, by the way, is the writer Michael Muhammad Knight. His novel, The Taqwa Corps, depicts a fictional Muslim punk scene. It was an influential book and was later developed into a documentary about real Muslim punk bands, including the Kuminas. But back to Muslim Wake Up. The article was controversial, but it helped launch the Kuminas to a much larger audience. Some of the stuff Mike wrote about upset people in the community, including Shah Jahan's parents. Yet there was also something enticing about it, a sense of danger right down to the photo. And it was the first time that, you know, and like me and Bossom took a, like a quote unquote press photo, like just like standing next to a dumpster at UMass Lowell. I was holding like a rolled cigarette and I was wearing, I remember this very vividly. I was, Bossom had, I think his arm was broken. He was, had his leather jacket. I was wearing like a Gap sweatshirt that I had since high school. <laughs> It's, it's for me, Shah Jahan, and it's actually really super cool to hear you kind of describe this from inside out, because I remember reading that article in Muslim Wake Up and clocking, mm-hmm. ooh, what's going on here? And why does this feel yeah. different and fresh and, you know, disruptive? And mm-hmm. I want to I see where this goes. And yeah. I remember, you know, around the same time, the author who you've mentioned already, Michael Muhammad Knight, writing mm-hmm. the novel Taqwa Cores, which right. you know, it initially, of course, was distributed as a photocopied, yep, you know, yep. spiral bound. And that, that's book. basically and I, what brought that was pre uh, right before we started the band when Bassam and I ran into each other at college. He gave me the book and he was like, You need to read this. That's so interesting. So I still I it's fine. I just reread a little bit of it at my parents' place a couple of weeks ago because they still have that copy. My dad is a huge fan of Mike and stuff now, and they've met and they've you know, Mike is still a very, very dear friend of mine. I want to get to that in a second because yeah. I remember picking up a copy, probably from him or one of his few acolytes at a large Islamic convention, you know, sometime in the yeah, 90s. Yeah. And I, too, have that spiral-bound copy of... Oh, of you have the spiral? I don't have the spiral one. That's I, amazing. I, I got the spiral-bound copy. I, have, I just copy. have the first uh, soft skull press or whatever. I'm no, I got, I got the spiral-bound copy. That's amazing. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't even know how I got this. But in a way, it's a question that I've always wanted to ask. 
you know, it's what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the band or the book? Because the two things seemed to be happening at almost the same time. And there were moments where I'd be reading Thakwa Kors and I'd be listening to your tunes and I'm like, yeah, it was a what, little weird. What, uh, what Honestly, came first? What literally came the <laughs> the book came first, but we sort of, I mean, Basim and I knew each other when we were 15. And it's like, yeah, the book definitely inspired him and I to make, you know, the band for sure. And then these two things were sort of concurrently happening, but that's sort of also where things kind of got a little bit weird and wild. And, and you know, looking back on it, it's like, it's so cool that so many people related to stuff and that it still played like a really important part of their lives. It just, every time I'm asked about it, it it's hard. It, I, it would be wrong of me not to also mention just the, and again, every band is like, yo, I hate when they label out, you know what I mean? Like, that's not anything that's just like for us, <laughs> but like in this specific instance, like it became weird and complicated very quickly because it was kind of like, anytime you're like part of something that's, bigger than you and you know people look to you for certain things like it things can get weird and, and out of control you know it the thakur core's documentary which you've talked about was also kind of a really important you know cultural phenomenon right people are watching this all over the world and i'm sure there were folks certainly right from indonesia to morocco from uh, britain to south africa who were then jumping into their you know, their own version of the garage and mm -hmm. taking out their instruments and trying to be Muslim punk, trying to be taqwa core. Or in some cases, even saying that we were sellouts. Like, I'll never forget this one time we got a copy of a zine from Indonesia where, like, there's a scene of actual, like, real Muslim punks who thought we were a bunch of sellouts. And the cover was, a there's a there's sort of a uh, somewhat well-known photo of me a friend of mine handing me a burrito and I'm like holding a guitar without a shirt on. And in that zine, the burrito hand was replaced with a fist. Oh, wow. It was like a punch to my face because I'm not a real Muslim punk, which That's... I thought was awesome. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty awesome. I yeah. mean, you, you've talked about this uneasiness about being yeah. associated with a so-called movement. Looking back I'm, on I'm it. I'm okay with it now. Are like you? Now, actually, honestly, after the podcast, like not to, be whatever about it, but like, that was a really cool exercise. He's talking about his autobiographical podcast, King of the World. You know, I've been through lots of different forms of recovery and I've written out steps and, and 12 steps and things like that. For me, that whole experience and actually kind of like putting it all down and then like narrating and, you know, sitting for hours in my closet booth and narrating the story of my life finally sort of put a lot of these pieces together where now I, I feel much more like, hey, it's cool. This is just like one facet of who I was. I want to jump into your podcast in a moment. Yeah, yeah. It's By the way, it's magnificent. Thank you. But I got to ask about your dad. Your dad was critical of you when that first article came out. My you dad is my biggest fan. That's what I was going to ask. He is, he is the star of one of our music videos. Disco Uncle. Yeah. So in the video, like, you know, the premise is that we're like these like punks, our car broke down and Disco Uncle comes to save the day and take us to a punk gig <laughs> and he's running around. So we filmed it in Providence, the streets of Providence, Very with, cool. um, where he's spray painting graffiti. He's like putting on a cool 
studded rocker jacket and he ends up at this punk show and that's like the it's actually really special and it, it's my dad isn't uh, his health isn't that great these days so i um i'm really lucky that i've had those kind of moments with him and one of my favorite things ever in that video is like the two of us are sort of in a studio and we're basically arguing and that was a day after the shoot that it was like a pickup shoot that we did in boston just me and him and um yeah we just had fun you know oh that's that sounds like a beautiful story well mate my dad is kind of a punk man he's like he's not like like yeah he hangs out in these like some elite circles but he's an engineer but like i always tell the story one time he was bored with a conversation that was going on at some party so he just like whipped out a book of poetry and started reading Fez, Ahmed Fez, in the I middle of some like high school graduation party or something where he just was like, you know what, I'm sick of talking to these people. So what's more punk than that? You know, your your podcast is titled King of the World, and I love the title because the translation of your name, Shah Jahan, and it follows your experiences of being an American Muslim post 9-11. It goes into, you know, all these facets of your life. And as you've already talked about very honestly, a big part of the podcast is about your struggles with mental health and addiction. And, and Shah Jahan, there's just moments in King of the World that are just so raw and honest and unvarnished and straight. Why did you choose to tell your story in that raw and unvarnished way? And why did you choose to tell it like this? I can't take credit that it was actually the CEO of Rafaelion Media, Asad Butt. We grew up together here in Boston. We had sort of loosely stayed in touch after uh, high school and stuff and kind of watched each other from afar kind of thing. Like he was in journalism and then he went into uh, VC and that kind of thing. And he was always interested in my band and, and stuff like that. And he'd started a different kind of interview-based show sort of like yours to sort of get the ball rolling, get back into production type stuff. And he was like, I want to, it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11's coming up. I want to do something in his mind, a little more like journalistic focused. And that was his plan. And maybe just have me host a show or whatever. I think we sat together. He was like, maybe let's make a Google doc, a spreadsheet of just everything that happened in your life, you know, 2001 through 2021. And I'm just putting down stuff. And he's like, this is all <laughs> happened to you. Like, this is pretty interesting. So we... As we we kind of, we didn't know what we were doing. Like neither of us had made a narrative series before. Mm. But to me, like the more and more I started writing, I was comfortable in a storytelling fashion, honestly, because of probably because of recovery. And like I did do AA and NA and those things. And so I was very used to like telling my story to people, even going into treatment centers, but I had never like put it all out there in that way. So I think as we were going it just occurred to me that like, I mean, the only way this is going to work is if I like just say everything. You know, there's some stuff that I wasn't 100% sure about at first. Like there's a part where I like read, like, so I, I requested some of my hospitalization records, you know, stuff that I had sort of logically was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do this. And then when I got in to do it, it was actually like really tough. And you can probably hear it in my voice or whatever. And honestly, after the thing was done, like, 
there was a bit of like, whoa, I just like really did that, you know? There's been so many sort of, you know, post 9-11 type narrative works books. There have, and I knew that there would be, and that was definitely something we were cognizant of, but also just like, it's that also this whole thing of like representation and the media and stuff. Like Mm. we are at that point where when, for example, Caminos was starting, maybe we're the only brown punk band you know, and you're just like, oh, this is so cool because it's the first one and it's just that like something to latch on to. Now there is a lot of stuff, so you don't have to like like everything that comes out, you know, or just because it's a Muslim thing or a brown thing, there's enough of a selection. But I, we're all at Rafelion, also firm believers in the like, we just need to make more stuff, you know? I totally agree with you, Shah Jahan. Yeah. And, you know, like, I think there's the cynic that says, oh, these stories are derivative. But frankly, the post 9-11 period for... It's like the most important event in our life, you know, like it's not... Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think there's as many stories as there are people, and there's as many traumas and challenges as there are stories. Yeah. And I found it really ironic that... That the producers of the 2021 sleeper hit Don't Look Up cast you to play a Homeland Security <laughs> official. Did they do that knowing that you no, had been working on this me. super, super no, dope, super dope podcast? They had no idea who I was. It was, uh, yeah. I yeah. know. How did that feel? Was it a little it, uncomfortable to be kind of playing the part, wearing the costume? Honestly, no, man. I just was there to like see if I could be in a movie. I mean, it was a dark comedy so that i think it, it was poking fun at everything and i you know but it's funny that you say that uh one of my bandmates cousins she once uh she texted me on instagram and she was like it's weird to see you playing like a you know whatever <laughs> tsa agent or you know homeland security person and i'm like yeah it's it's a movie <laughs> it's like but but i think there's yeah. something the fact that she yeah. noted it right yeah this, yeah, this, yeah this like role role reversal right we find yeah, ourselves yeah, yeah. even in play right on the other side of that yeah. there's this kind of Oh, yeah. there is. And I imagine like inside you're kind of thinking, oh, well, what's going on in the mind of someone like this, given my own experiences with folks like this? Yeah, and I'm not going to say it's not something I wasn't thinking about. You know, again, I, this was um, my first sort of big role as like a what's called a featured extra. So you're not supposed to say anything unless they ask you to like improv or something. So I'm just in there in this room. Granted, you know, I've never been on like a really big film like that and in front of me is Leonardo DiCaprio and Meryl Streep and all these people I'm just trying not to like be an idiot Adam McKay is the, uh, a very like chill kind of director and there's a, it was a great master class in you know and it served me so in the last year now you will be seeing me saying things a lot and stuff you know I've now been an actor I would say for about eight years so I've done some theater and stuff and mostly some like smaller indie things but in the last year and a half I've done some pretty exciting things the podcast, as you said, required you to be open about your deepest struggles at the yeah. darkest points of your life. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, at the end of that, as you come out of that, and it was, you know, the podcast was multi-awarded and heavily cited, and people really talked about how amazing and great it was, and rightfully so. But for you, as Shah Jahan Khan, did you feel like it brought you closer to some people and some things that you had maybe been a little bit distant from? Like, where do you come out at the end of that? It came out at sort of the tail end of my 30s at a time when I think lots of people maybe are reevaluating themselves and their priorities and stuff. It gave me like a sense of 
real like pride in my own resilience in a way, you know, and it definitely has, it helped me realign, like just what really matters, what are the things that I want? And yeah, like I've, I'm pursuing other things pretty heavily and like things are going really well, but like when you're in a band and that's like your main drive and that's all you're doing in a band like ours, uh, you get to like travel all over the world. You get to meet all sorts of amazing people, but in the back of your mind, you're kind of like trying to get to the next thing. Like what's the next level? You know, I didn't pay close attention to like the important relationships in my life as much as I ought to have. And in conjunction with like all these like mental health struggles too, where you kind of like, it's almost like two extremes where you're like, on the one hand, when you're good, like you're totally driven and you're just like full steam ahead. And then you're sort of like, you feel like a complete fraud and you don't want to do anything. It is a very selfish way of living, I think. But really like these days, I just want to be with quality friends and people and just like, it's just really important to me. Maybe in a way that it wasn't before where it was a little bit more just about like me and like my own, what am I going to be and what am I going to mean coming from the legacy of my family, coming from all these things. Shah Jahan is one of those guys who has his hand in so many things. I wondered what exactly was driving him. There are three things he's excited about. One, his company Rofelian Media is about to grow due to a major investment. We're actually going to be putting out a call for scripts loosely based on Ramadan, like from new writers and new directors to kind of like give people a shot at stuff. So that's really exciting. Two, his acting career is picking up steam. He had the opportunity to be on the latest season of one of his favorite TV shows, and frankly, one of my favorite TV shows, Succession. I got to spend a week on that set and hang out, and it was like a dream come true. I also just, on uh, April 6th, I had my first like TV premiere as uh, in this like lifetime murder mystery, which was actually really awesome. And no surprise here, number three is music. He has tours coming up with the Kuminas and others. For me, like, if I'm not playing music live, something, some part of me is missing. And that's something that I've realized, you know, after the podcast, I'm like super excited and so grateful to be here at, you know, at 40 when, you know, things can get boring for some people. I don't know. I still do struggle a lot with depression and things, you know, but like I've realized that for me, I just not a very balanced person, and that's like okay. Shah Jahan, tell me about a joy or a meanness that recently came to you as an unexpected visitor. Family vacation. Recently, we took to visit my younger sister in Salt Lake City. We were hiking, and I got to carry my one-year-old nephew on one of those little like backpack things and for like an hour and he, he I'm literally I'm his favorite like I don't care what anybody says <laughs> but yeah just his laughter you know just the silliness and you know the laughter of a child <laughs> that's beautiful what's more joyful than that Shah Jahan Khan this has been a real pleasure it's been so wonderful to spend this time with you thank you so much Thank you for being on This Being Human. Pleasure was all mine. 
Thank you for listening to This Being Human. You can look in the show notes for some links to Shah Jahan's work and some of the other things we discussed on the show today. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Haley Choi. Our executive producer is Laura Regeer. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Original music by Boombox Sound. Shago Yeg Tajvidi is TVO's managing editor of digital video and podcasts. Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum. Through the arts, the Aga Khan Museum sparks wonder, curiosity, and understanding of Muslim cultures and their connection with other cultures. The museum wishes to thank the Hillary and Galen Weston Foundation for their generous support of This Being Human.